morning, ladies and gentlemen. So glad for you to join us once again on the How to Bible podcast. My name is Levi. I am the host of this podcast. Please start your day off right with us every day on the How to Bible podcast. We discuss everything from parenting, end times events, and everything in between. Join us as we walk in grace and learn in love. Thanks again, guys, for tuning in to another episode of the How to Bible podcast. My name is Levi. I'm the host of this podcast, and I'm really excited that you're here today, that you've taken time out of your day to listen to me and come to this podcast. Uh, it means the world to me. You guys can always reach out and give me feedback at howtobiblepodcast at gmail.com. That's howtobiblepodcast at gmail.com. I love hearing from you. I love getting feedback, uh, topic ideas that you'd like for us to unpack on this podcast. Anything like that, anything at all, please feel free to shoot me a little email or a little note, and, and I will get started on that as quickly as I can. Today, briefly, I want to talk about something that uh, I've been reading to my my eight-year-old son. Um, it's been really amazing. I, I read this book, gosh, I want to say two years ago I read it, um, and it's been incredible. It's Knowing God by J.I. Packer. Um, I know it's kind of an obscure, maybe, author. He's written tons of information. He's an amazing, godly man. Um, I would highly, highly, highly recommend this book. Uh, If you're interested in really understanding the intimacy of God and getting into that intimacy with him. Um, Today, we're going to talk about chapter two of the book. Uh, It struck me last night as I was reading this to to my little boy, um, and people laugh at me, you know, this son's eight years old and you're reading this? Yes, because I want him to really understand the intimacy that he can have with God as he grows into a godly boy, into a godly man, uh, and, and really understand the potential that he has for that relationship, this side of death. Um, so he talks about uh, people who know their God in chapter two. In fact, that's the title of it. There's a difference between knowing God versus knowing about God, which a lot of times I feel like feel like that's myself. I know a lot about God, but I don't really know God. And I know that that's the voice of the accuser in my ear. Uh, maybe you're like me at times and you stumble out of a sin or you catch yourself doing something you shouldn't be doing. And those moments afterwards can be so painful, the the accusations that are being thrown at you from from the devil and and from your own self. I mean, believe me, you don't need that much temptation um, to find yourself in sin. We really, we, we can do it just fine on our own. Uh, but you hear those voices in your head saying, you know, you're not worthy and and God can't forgive you and you're too far gone. And, and those are just the voices of the accuser. That's why the devil is called the accuser of the brethren, because he stands accusing uh, God and accusing the Christians of the world of their sin and throwing it back in our faces um, and trying to break down that image and break down what God has done in our lives. One thing I want to say, just on a side note here, when we're talking about the devil, when we talk about, you know, the 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 morning star or the the you know the the wicked one, Satan, whoever whoever he's called, he's called by many names. You have to understand something. He is just another angel. He is not Jesus Christ's equal. He's nowhere near equal with Christ the King, okay? So I feel like we have this, this thing that happens in our head where we, where we try to put 
you know, like Jesus and the devil on the same level, like they're in this epic arm wrestling battle for the salvation of the world and the devil's tearing it down and Jesus, it's not like that. When Christ returns, it's going to be one word, a snap of his finger. He's going to breathe and everything is going to stop. Everything is going to cease. The devil does not have that power. He may have the power to influence, but he certainly does not have the power that our Lord, our Savior, and the King of Kings has. He is the created one. Everything was created through him and for him and by him. Okay, the devil is just another angel, just another angelic being. So don't try to put him on that same pedestal. That's not where he belongs. Uh, he belongs in the angelic realm, and, and that's that's it. Like, he has no power beyond that. But getting back to our topic today, when we talk about the difference between knowing God and knowing about him, um, there's a verse that I think of in 2 Timothy. It's going to be 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, verse 5. I would suggest reading the entire section there. Uh, but it says, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power, avoid such people. It's talking about godlessness in the last days, that there will be people who have this appearance of godliness, people who know the Bible, people who know God or, or presume to know God, but they will be denying its power. And in this letter written to Timothy, um, Paul tells him, you know, stay away from people like this. You know, in, in, I want to say it's in 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians, it says that uh, bad company corrupts good character. So the people that you find yourself in, that core group of friends, the individuals that you're around, those are going to influence your character. Those people will influence your character, and that character will change upon your environment. So if you're, if you're um, surrounding yourself with people of bad character or bad character or a bad company, it's going to tear you down and you're going to end up taking on their ways. So let me read the whole thing real quick out of 2 Timothy chapter 3. It says, um, let me pull it up real quick. But understand this, that in the last days, there will come difficult, there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. That's 2 Timothy 3 verses 1 through uh, 5. And doesn't that just sound like our time? And I'm sure people over the ages have said the same thing, that this just sounds like sounds like our age back in the 1800s and the 1700s. But I feel like it's progressively gotten worse rapidly. Um, I, I look at the um, swollen with conceit section and the lovers of pleasure rather than the lovers of God. I mean, we have a million different ways in which we can please and entertain ourselves. Um, and just being swollen with conceit, I think of social media and you know Instagram and Snapchat and these things that are designed to... Um, show your best side, filters to remove blemishes and, you know, all these cute little animal faces you can put on there just to make yourself look different and, and unique and, and pretty. And those things are not, they're not bad. Let me just, let me put it inherently in their nature. They're not bad. They're bad when they take on a, a higher position than our worship for God. When we begin to worship ourselves, when that narcissistic uh, tendency kicks in. Uh, and we begin to just um, worship those things. We spend more time. If you want to know what it is you worship, just think about where your heart rests most of the time. 
Does your heart think about money, making money? Does your heart think about your career? Does it think about all these other things? Or does it think about God? Do you spend your time praying to God? All right. So let's take a look at the difference between knowing God versus um, knowing about him. I'm going to read these two points by uh, J.I. Packer, uh, and then we'll move on to the evidence of an individual who does, in fact, know God. Okay, here we go. This is going to be page 26 of J.I. Packer's Knowing God. Excuse me, let me get a drink of water here. All right, here we go. Number one, one can know a great deal about God without much knowledge of him. I am sure that many of us have never really grasped this. We find in ourselves a deep interest in theology, which is, of course, a most fascinating, intriguing subject in the 17th century. It was every gentleman's hobby. We read books of theological exposition and apologetics. We dip into Christian history and study the Christian creed. We learn to find our way around scripture Others appreciate our interest in these things, and we find ourselves asked to give our opinion in public on this or that Christian question, or lead a Bible study, or give papers, or to write articles, and generally to accept responsibility, informal or not formal, for acting as teachers and arbiters of the orthodoxy in our own Christian circle. Our friends tell us how much they value our contribution, and this spurs us to further explore, or to be further explorers of God's truth, so that we may be equal to the demands that are made upon us. I love that he highlights those things of of having an interest in theology and apologetics, and I've met many um, extremely godly people who only read theology. I'm sorry, not godly people, but extremely moral people who read theology, read Christian books just because they want to know more about God so they can use it against Christians or, you know, everyone quotes that verse, you know, judge not lest you be judged, but they don't understand the context of the verse because they don't know God. They just know about him. Here's this last section here in part one. All are very fine, yet interest in theology and knowledge about God and the capacity to think clearly and talk well on Christian themes, is not at all the same as knowing him. We may know as much about God as Calvin knew. He's talking about John Calvin. Indeed, if we study his work diligently, sooner or later we shall, and yet all the same time, unlike Calvin, may I say, we may hardly know God at all. The implication is that knowing God is so much more than just having the content and the information. You think about the Christians who who are in foreign countries and that are being persecuted for their faith, that are being run down and killed for their faith, oftentimes they don't have a Bible. Uh, I remember watching, um, watching or hearing a story about uh, North Koreans that had suitcases of, of Bibles delivered to them, and, and they practically trampled each other just getting to the suitcase and, and pulling out Bibles uh, because they just don't have the Word. So having the content in front of us does not mean that we are in fact Christians or that we know God. It means we may know a little bit about him, which is it's kind of the plague of the United States is that we know a little bit about God. We know enough uh, really to be dangerous uh, and we know enough to, in, to uh, imitate uh, a Christian believer. Okay, so the second part of this is one can know a great deal about godliness without much knowledge of God. 
It depends on the sermons one hears, the books one reads, the company one keeps. In this analytical and technological age, there is no shortage of books on the church book tables or sermons from the pulpits on how to pray, how to witness, how to read your Bible, how to tithe, and how to be a young Christian, how to be an old Christian, how to be a happy Christian, how to, how to get consecrated, how to lead people to Christ, how to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, how to speak with tongues, and generally, how to go through all the various motions which the teachers in question associate with being a Christian believer. Nor is there any shortage of biographies dealing, I'm sorry, dealing, okay, describing, we're just going to say that, <laughs> and the experiences of Christians in the past for our, our interested individual. Whatever else may be said about the state of the affairs, it certainly makes it possible to learn a great deal secondhand about the practice of Christianity. Moreover, if one has been given a good bump of common sense, one may frequently be able to use this learning to help floundering Christians of less stable temperament to regain their footing, and develop a sense of proportion about their troubles. And in this way, one may gain for oneself a reputation for being quite a pastor. Yet one can have all this and hardly know God at all. Wow. It's really convicting, too, because I think about all of the things in my life that, um, you know, I have, I have ministries outside of, of what I do with the church, excuse me, um, and and people come to me and ask questions like, "Hey Levi, what do you think about what do you think about this?" I have a, a friend of mine at work who who is a, a Muslim or a fresh new Christian convert. I'm not quite sure where he stands yet, but um, he's always asking questions like, "So what's the deal with Abraham?" and and you know, "What's the deal with the polygamy and multiple wives? Is that okay?" And he's trying to find his footing and. And in some ways, we, if we're not careful, can end up in the same position as, as what J.I. Packer is talking about. It's just having the content and the information and being able to be familiar enough with it to regurgitate it to assist another person who's struggling but still not know God and not know who he is. And, and I think that a little bit of, of fear in a mature Christian's life is a good thing. A little bit of doubt is a good thing because... It will allow us to continually do a self-inventory, which I think is crucial in maintaining that narrow road and going through the narrow door um, so or the narrow gate. Um, so I think that it's really important for us to, to constantly be self-evaluating, like, okay, where am I at right now with the Lord? Like, where's my heart at? Because God judges the heart of a man, right? Uh, I read something last night about that, and I was just thinking about some of the frustrating circumstances that I had at work yesterday and in my head and in my heart, which I would equate to be relatively, you know, at least the same thing. You know, what I say in my head is probably what's stored up in my heart. Um, and I was pretty hurtful. Um, and I definitely would not have said the things out loud because those things would have either got me in trouble at work or, or worse. Um, so Self-inventory is critical when we're when we're talking about knowing God or just knowing about Him. Um, I think that it's important, especially today, for us to take a minute and just, okay, where's my heart at? Like, what are my priorities? Here's another question. Am I saved because of my spouse? Um, 
Is my faith strong because of the people in my life or is my faith strong because of me? Um, that's usually the first thing that the devil uh, takes a shot at with me when when I stumble in sin is, are you in fact saved or are you just um, are you just going through the motions because you have an amazing wife who who knows God? And so those those moments are really cathartic for me. Uh, but I think that those God allows those things to be said to me because they cause that self inventory. So if you're in a situation where you know you, you've sinned or you're in sin or you're struggling and you hear those things, that's a good thing. You know, turn that turn that weakness into a strength by using that to create a self inventory in your life. So one of the first things that you can do, number one, is when those doubts come, use those things to uh, do an inventory of yourself, where your heart's at. Hit that highlight reel of your of your Christian faith, the steps you've taken, the motions that you've made through our faith, uh, and what um, and and what what does that say about you? What does that say about your faith and who you are? So those are two of the main points that he cites as as really knowing knowing God and um, knowing Him and knowing about Him. So I want to talk about these these quick points over here on the other side, and then we'll wrap it up. He's got um, three points that he covers about the evidence of knowing God, like evidence in your life, fruit in your life that shows that you do, in fact, know God and that you don't just know about him. Okay, the first one is this. Those who knew, know God have great energy for God. In one of the prophetic chapters of Daniel, we read that, quote, the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. That's going to be 1132 of Daniel. And the RSV renders it this way. It says, the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. In the context, this statement is introduced by but and set in contrast to the activity of the contemptible person who sets up the abomination that causes desolation and corrupts by smooth and flattery talk those who are loyal to God's covenant. Okay, this is going to be verse 31 and 32. This shows us that the action taken by those who know God is their reaction to the anti-God trends, which they see operating all around them. While their God is being defiled or disregarded, they cannot rest. They feel they must do something. The dishonor done to God's name goads them into action. So he's saying that, hey, if you want evidence of of whether or not you actually know God, your evidence is based on your action. So when something happens around you, when somebody says the Lord's name in vain, when somebody cusses, when somebody starts telling, you know, um, horrible jokes at work and you're like, you know, I have to excuse myself or you uh, correct them. Hey, can you not? use the Lord's name in vain, please. That is evidence of somebody who knows God, not somebody who knows about him. The person that knows about him won't step up and won't correct them. He continues in this chapter too and talks about um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And I love, I love, love, love the response to the king. And this, in my mind, is is really uh, displays a a more mature faith. Uh, and, and this would be an, like, if you wanted to have a measurement of where your faith was at, it would be along the lines of what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say. Let me see if I can find it here real quick. I could paraphrase it for you, but it's just not the same. Um, gosh, I'm sorry, guys. I don't have it in front of me. I apologize. 
But basically, they look at him and says, King, we want you to know this, that even if our God does not save us, we will not worship your gods. I mean, isn't that the apex of our faith? When we know that God can save us, so we pray for salvation, we pray for healing, we pray for deliverance, but when he doesn't, we're like, it doesn't matter, I'm still going to continue to follow you and still trudge forward. That is full-on, hardcore faith right there, an individual who doesn't matter, who doesn't care about the situation, but charges forward like that. The second point here is, those who know God have great thoughts of God. There is not enough space here to gather up all that the book of Daniel tells us about wisdom, might, the truth of the great God who rules history and shows his sovereignty and acts of judgment and mercy towards individuals and nations according to his own good pleasure. Suffice it to say that there is perhaps no more vivid or sustained presentation of the many-sided reality of God's sovereignty in the whole Bible. He's talking about the book of Daniel here. In the face of the might and splendor of the Babylonian Empire, which had swallowed up Palestine and the prospect of further great world empires to follow, dwarfing Israel by every standard of human calculation, the book as a whole forms a dramatic reminder that God, that the God of Israel is the King of kings and Lord of lords, that heaven rules. Heaven rules? Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I had to throw that in there. That was for my son last night. He got a kick out of it. (laughs) The central truth which Daniel taught Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2 and chapter 4, and of which he reminded Belshazzar in chapter 5, and then he goes on to to continue. I'm not going to read this whole section because he continues to do this kind of um, citing all the things that, that they said, you know, the things that were said in these different chapters, and it goes on for quite a while. Um... But it talks about the great thoughts of God, the ideas that we have about God, the the one who keeps his God, who keeps his covenant with us. And what are your thoughts about God? How do you think of him when you think of him? Do you think of him as that angry stepfather? Unfortunately, a lot of us have really bad and really poor examples of, of fathers in our lives. And we equate that to God, but that's not that's not the case. We always have to come back to the word of God, back to scripture, uh, for the authoritative um, standard of who God is. I want to encourage you to continue to do that. All right. And the last point here, um, well, I'll do these real quickly cause I have to, I have to go to work, but, um, those who show, uh, those who know God show great boldness for him. Um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, the apostles in Acts 5, uh, 29 say, we must obey God rather than men. And they take beatings and floggings for that. Are you bold in your daily life for the Lord? Are you bold for God when you step out? And lastly, those who know God have great contentment in him. Resting in the Lord, abiding in him. Uh, this is the peace that Paul speaks about in Romans 5, when, he's, when he says, Since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, who and whose substance he analyzes in Romans 8, when he says there is now, no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. There's that peace that comes with it. You're no longer condemned as a Christian. You don't sit in condemnation with God. Okay? The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children, that we are heirs of God. So, these four things highlight um, what it looks like as an individual who, excuse me, who knows God. We talked about the individual who knows of God, but the one who knows God is bold. 
The person who knows God takes action. The person who knows God has weighty thoughts of God and his sovereignty and holiness as he rests in a holy place. And the one that knows God has contentment in him, knowing that he is the only treasure that you will ever need. You will not need money, food, clothing, a place to live. If you have the Lord, you have everything. So as you pray today, as you move out, be a person of boldness, of action, to step up for God, to step out in boldness for him, to rest contently in him, and to pray fervently. I want to leave you with this verse in James, James 5, 19. My dear brothers and sisters, if someone among you wanders away from the truth and is brought back, that is not the verse I wanted to share with you. <laughs> I just realized that. James 5, uh, verse 17. Elijah was a human just as we are, and yet he prayed earnestly that no rain would fall and none fell for three and a half years. I like that it highlights that Elijah was a man with the same consistency as you and I, the same body, the same mind, the same heart, the same amount of time in the day, yet when he prayed earnestly, when he rested in God, when he was bold for God, God answered. So ladies and gentlemen, as you step out today, remember those four things. Those are That's evidence of your your knowing God and not just knowing about him, that you're bold, that you rest in him, that you have weighty thoughts of him, that you take action for him. So I pray for you guys today. I pray that the Lord blesses you. I pray that you move powerfully forward. Um, Again, reach out to me, um, share this podcast with people. Let's spread the word about the message of the Lord and how he loves you and how he cares for you and how we can know him more passionately. So for the glory of the Lord and the hope of the nations, ladies and gentlemen, Christian brothers and sisters, stay the course.